Our Old Testament lesson is from Job 27, verses 1 through 6. And Job continued his discourse. As surely as, the Lord, as God lives, who has denied me justice, the Almighty, who has made me taste bitterness of soul, as long as I have life within me, the breath of God in my nostrils, my lips will not speed wickedness, and my tongue will utter no deceit. I will never admit you are in the right. Till I die, I will not deny my integrity. I will maintain my righteousness and never let go of it. My conscience will not reproach me as long as I live. Shall we pray? Our Father, we have heard wonderful things out of thy word. We praise you for revealing Christ by promise and shadow in these pages. Help us to understand these words for thy name's sake. Amen. The New Testament lesson for this Lord's Day is taken from the book of Romans, chapter 3, verses 21 through 26. But now a righteousness from God, apart from the law, has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness comes from God, comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. He did this to demonstrate his justice because in his forbearance, he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his justice at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. Let us pray. Our Father, we have heard wonderful things out of thy word. We praise you for revealing Christ as the fulfillment of the Old Testament and ask you to give us your spirit so that we may understand the fullness of your truth. Amen. It started in Job chapter 3 with Job's heartfelt lament. And then his three friends, Eliphaz and Bildad and Zophar, ended their silence, apparently seeking to comfort their suffering friend. But it soon became clear that Job's friends are not trying to comfort him so much as they are trying to confront him. And Job will have none of it. And so a dialogue between Job and his friends quickly escalates into a full-blown argument. Job defiantly rejects that self righteous counsel from his friends, all of whom believe that the reason why Job is suffering has to do with the fact that Job had committed some secret sin that brought down upon his head the retributive justice of God. Job not only denies that he's committed such a sin, he rejects outright his friend's analysis of the facts at hand. Job will continue to defend himself he will continue to defend his honor, and he will continue to proclaim his innocence. Now this morning we wrap up what is described as the debate section of the book of Job as we turn to that third and final cycle of those ever-intensifying speeches from Job and his friends, along with Job's increasingly defiant replies. What had been hinted at early in the cycle of speeches that Job must have committed some secret sin is now fully out in the open. 
Not only do Job's friends openly accuse him of wrongdoing, they regard Job's denial of having sinned and his rejection of their understanding of the principle of divine retribution as concrete evidence that Job is not the righteous man that people think that he is. Job's audacious defense of his good name, his complete rejection of his friend's position that God necessarily punishes the wicked and rewards the righteous in this life, strikes all of Job's friends as a denial of a fundamental theological truth. Job's friends cannot understand why Job fails to see the obvious. And while it is true that God must, must punish the wicked, what Job is starting to realize, and that his friends do not see, is that God may have a purpose in the suffering of the righteous, which is not connected to a principle of retributive justice, that God has to punish sin necessarily in this life. This is something that Job's friends even refuse to consider as a possibility. Now, as we've seen throughout the earlier chapters of Job, keeping context and the structure of this book in our minds as we work forward is absolutely essential if we're to understand the book's primary message, which is that Job's suffering points us ahead to the greater Job, Jesus Christ, in whom all the mysteries of God's providence will be finally and fully revealed. Now, based upon that heavenly scene back in Job chapter 1 and 2 in the prologue, we know the reason why Job is suffering. Now, thinking that Job is a self-righteous hypocrite, Satan has asked God's permission to take away Job's possessions and his family, and when that failed to expose Job's supposed hypocrisy, Satan asked God to take away Job's health as well, and thus Job must undergo a trial by ordeal so as to establish one of the fundamental principles of redemptive history, that Satan will be defeated by the suffering and the perfect righteousness of none other than Jesus Christ. But neither Job nor his friends know what the reader knows from the prologue. And that's the great irony when Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar relentlessly seek to convince Job that their understanding of the nature of things, that God must punish the wicked in this life. Job has moved on from that misunderstanding of God's justice to probe the deeper mysteries of God's providence. Now, the depths and the degree of Job's suffering have pushed him well beyond this superficial and self-righteous judgment made by his friends. While Job is becoming increasingly convinced that what he needs is a mediator, a redeemer, a heavenly goel, a, a kinsman, someone who will come and argue his case with God on his behalf. The great irony is that all three of Job's friends think that Job is a hypocrite because Job denies their faulty understanding of God's justice. Now, if you know the prologue, you know that that's the same assessment of Job made by Satan. And so, in the name of defending God and defending God's honor, just as Job's wife had done, Job's friends now are actually doing the devil's bidding when they insist that Job is no true servant of God, as seen in the fact of his suffering and seen in his stubborn refusal to heed the counsel of his friends. Now, despite the depths of his pain and his despair, 
In the previous round of speeches, remember that we witnessed Job get his dander up. Job's had enough of it. And while his friends continue to ignore his feelings or even demonstrate to their friend a modicum of mere human compassion, Job's faith and hope are ever so slowly beginning to be rekindled throughout these cycles of dialogues. In fact, in Job chapter 19, verses 23 through 27, we hear these remarkable words from Job. Oh, that my words were recorded, that they were written on a scroll, that they were inscribed with an iron tool on lead or engraved in rock forever. I know that my Redeemer lives and that in the end He will stand on the earth. And after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I will see God. I myself will see with my own eyes and not another. How my heart yearns within me. Job wants an abiding record of his innocence written in stone so that long after he's dead and gone, his good name will live on. And despite the repeated assertions from his friends that the suffering of the wicked is proof that their understanding of this retributive principle of divine justice is the right one, Instead, Job's eyes are now firmly fixed on the future. Job longs for a mediator. He not only knows that his Redeemer lives, Job firmly believes that one day this same Redeemer will stand on the earth and that Job will see him with his own eyes. Job longs for that day of resurrection when his diseased and rotting flesh will be raised from the grave imperishable. It is clear that Job's understanding of these matters now greatly exceeds the faulty application of the principle of retributive justice on the part of his three friends. It is the sufferer who is becoming wise, while those who think themselves to be wise are only revealing the depths of their folly. And so with that, we now come to Job chapter 22, cycle 3, round 1 which includes the final speech from Eliphaz along with Job's responses. And you may want to be taking out your Bibles and turning to Job chapter 22 as we work through another cycle of dialogues in this great book. Now, apparently realizing that Job is not at all impressed with the arguments that he has raised earlier to the effect that the wicked live miserable lives and that they die young, Eliphaz now greatly ratchets up the intensity of his words. And he's obviously worried about Job's soul. Sadly, Eliphaz has utterly failed to grasp or even listen to the substance of Job's arguments, nor is Eliphaz sadly even able to empathize with Job. And we already know that what Job needs is not a theological lecture, but compassion. Then again, since Eliphaz thinks that Job is self-deceived, instead he tries to point out that Job's assertion that God doesn't care, only proves the point that he's been trying to make all along, that Job is not this upright and blameless man that everyone thinks that he is. And so the growing intensity of this debate can be clearly seen in verses 1 through 4 of Job 22. Then Eliphaz the Tamanite replied, Can a man be of benefit to God? Can even a wise man benefit him? What pleasure would it give the Almighty if you were righteous? What would he gain if your ways were blameless? Is it for your piety that he rebukes you and brings charges against you? 
Now, according to Eliphaz, Job isn't being punished because he fears God. No, he's being punished because he's guilty of blasphemy for stating that God is indifferent to human behavior, good or evil. Job supposedly has denied the principle of retributive justice. For that alone, Eliphaz says he ought to be punished. And then in verses 5 through 11, Eliphaz openly accuses Job of being a sinner. Is not your wickedness great? Are not your sins endless? You demanded security from your brothers for no reason. You stripped men of their clothing, leaving them naked. You gave no water to the weary, and you withheld food from the hungry. Though you were a powerful man, owning land and owning land and honoring man living on it. And you sent widows away empty-handed and broke the strength of the fatherless. That is why snares are all around you, why sudden peril terrifies you, why it is so dark you cannot see, why a flood of water covers you. Now, having no proof whatsoever of any wrongdoing on Job's part, Eliphaz now directly accuses Job of misusing his wealth so as to exploit the poor. And in Eliphaz's flawed way of thinking, that explains why Job's wealth has been taken away from him. Now, not knowing that, Eliphaz, that Job's trial by ordeal has its roots in God's redemptive purposes and not in some sin that Job has supposedly committed, Eliphaz's remarks are not only patently false, they are utterly cruel. The intended comforter has now become an accuser, a mouthpiece of Satan. Now, thinking that what his suffering friend needs most is to be reminded of God's greatness so that he'll repent, in verses 12 through 20, Eliphaz turns Job's words on their head, putting blasphemies in Job's mouth, which he never uttered. And while Job has complained about feeling like he's under God's surveillance without being able to see the hand of God in his afflictions, Eliphaz, Eliphaz turns that into an argument against Job that Job's view separates God from the world he has made. And so Eliphaz drones on. Is not God on the heights of heaven? And see how lofty are the highest stars. Yet you say, what does God know? Does he judge through such darkness? Thick clouds veil him so he does not see us as he goes about in the vaulted heavens. Will you keep to the old path that evil men have trod? They were carried off before their time. Their foundations washed away by a flood. They said to God, leave us alone. What can the Almighty do to us? Yet it was he who filled their houses with good things. So I stand aloof from the counsel of the wicked. The righteous see their ruin and rejoice. The innocent mock them, saying, Surely our foes are destroyed and fire devours their wealth. This is not what Job said. It's not what Job meant. But then again, Eliphaz hasn't been listening. What Job did do is tell his friends how he feels, like God has abandoned him. But his friends never once put themselves in Job's place. They see Job's comments here as a fruit that, Job has some hidden or dark side to his life that is filled with sin. And given their faulty understanding of God's retributive justice, there can be no other explanation, right? Well, that is, unless, of course, they're wrong. But they're not wrong because they're not the one suffering. Job is. And yet, Job, poor Job, knows he's innocent. 
He's committed no secret sin. He can't begin to understand why all this has come to pass. He also knows that righteous people do suffer and wicked people do prosper. He's never denied that God must punish the wicked. But Job is beginning to understand that God may indeed have a purpose in his own suffering and that God's punishment of sinners and his rewarding of the righteous may not take place until the day of final judgment. It may very well be, Job is thinking, that we can't tell by observation whether people are righteous or sinful based solely upon whether or not they suffer or prosper. That's the erroneous view of Job's friends. And since Eliphaz can't begin to understand how a blameless and upright man could say the things that Job has said, he is clearly concerned for the state of Job's soul. If Job wants to be delivered from the predicament he's in, he needs to stop arguing with his friends, he needs to heed their instruction, and he needs to repent of his sins. Now this concern for his friend explains why in verses 21 through 30, Eliphaz urges Job to seek the mercy of God before it's too late. Submit to God and be at peace with him. In this way, prosperity will come to you. Accept instruction from his mouth and lay up his words in your heart. If you return to the Almighty, you'll be restored. If you remove wickedness from your tent and assign your nuggets to the dust, your gold of Ophir to the rocks and the ravines, then the Almighty will be your gold, the choice of silver for you. Surely then you will find delight in the Almighty and will lift up your face to God. You will pray to him and he will hear you and you will fulfill your vows. What you decide on will be done and light will shine on your ways. When men are brought low and you say, lift them up, then he will save the downcast. He will deliver even one who's not innocent. Are you listening, Job? He'll be delivered through the cleanness of your hands. Again, Eliphaz is speaking the truth. The problem is his words don't apply to Job. Job has not committed some secret sin. God has already told us that even in the depths of his despair, Job has not sinned by charging God with wrongdoing. Furthermore, Eliphaz speaks in such a self-righteous and pharisaical tone based on the erroneous assumption that Job is wrong and that Eliphaz has it downright. In fact, he doesn't even consider that he might be wrong. Now, given Eliphaz's condescending attitude, we wonder how his own words must have come back to haunt him when at the very conclusion of the story in Job 42, we learn that it's Job who must make intercession with God on behalf of his friends. Yes, Job is going to be vindicated in the end. Now, in his response in Job 23, Job completely ignores Eliphaz's speech, returning to the themes he'd already laid out back in Job 21. Now, what strikes Job isn't Eliphaz's argument. What strikes him is the mystery of God's providence. Job cannot see what his three friends think is self-evident. Job cannot understand why the righteous suffer or why the wicked prosper. But he knows that he has not sinned, and he digs his heels in all the more against the notion that his own suffering is some kind of a divine retribution against him. Only a person who's innocent puts up a fight like that. 
And that's why in Job 23, verses 2 through 9, Job wants to appear before God so as to be vindicated. And what troubles Job the most is it appears to him as though God can't even be found. Even today, Job says, my complaint is bitter. My hand is heavy in spite of my groaning. If only I knew where to find him. If only I could go to his dwelling. I would state my case before him and fill my mouth with arguments. I would find out what he would answer me and consider what he would say. Would he oppose me with great power? No, he would not press charges against me. There an upright man could present his case before him, and I would be delivered forever from my judge. But if I go to the east, he's not there. If I go to the west, I do not find him. When he's at work in the north, I do not see him. When he turns to the south, I catch no glimpse of him. But God knows where to find Job. In verses 10 through 17, Job continues to defend his conduct. But he knows the way that I take. When he's tested me, I will come forth as gold. My feet have closely followed his steps. I have kept his way without turning aside. I have not departed from the commands of his lips. I've treasured the words of his mouth more than my daily bread. But he stands alone, and who can oppose him? He does whatever pleases him. He carries out his decree against me. And with many such plans, he still has in store. That is why I am terrified before him. And when I think of all this, I fear him. God has made my heart faint. The Almighty has terrified me. Yet I'm not silenced by the darkness, by the thick darkness that covers my face. Look, if Job has not sinned, and if the righteous suffer in this life, then Job realizes that he's run directly into the mystery of God's sovereign decree that determines whatsoever comes to pass. And the thought of that strikes Job with absolute terror. And yet still, he is going to speak in his defense because he knows he is innocent. Now, if God's retributive justice cannot be reduced to some simplistic formula like that of his three friends, why then do the righteous suffer? And why do the wicked go unpunished? What purpose does God have in all of this? And so Job continues in verses 1 through 12 of Job 24. Why does the Almighty not set times for judgment? Why must those who know Him look in vain for such days? Men move boundary stones. They pasture flocks they have stolen. They drive away the orphan's donkey and take the widow's ox in pledge. They thrust the needy from the path and force all the poor of the land into hiding. Like wild donkeys in the desert, the poor go about their labor of foraging food. The wasteland provides food for their children. They gather fodder in the fields and glean in the vineyards of the wicked. Lacking clothes, they spend the night naked. They have nothing to cover themselves in the cold. They're drenched by mountain rains and hug the rocks for lack of shelter. The fatherless child is snatched from the breast. The infant of the poor is seized for a debt. Lacking clothes, they go about naked. They carry the sheaves but still go hungry. They crush olives among the terraces. They tread the wine presses, yet suffer thirst. The groans of the dying rise from the city, and the souls of the wounded cry out for help. But God charges no one 
with wrongdoing. Job doesn't understand. How can God allow the strong to exploit the weak? When will judgment befall them? Why? When? How? None of this fits with Job's beginning to understand of the necessity of a coming Redeemer. Now, it's not until we come to Job 24, verses 22 through 25, that Job's thinking out loud comes to its logical conclusion. That God drags away the mighty by His power, though they have become established, they have no assurance of life. He may let them rest in a feeling of security, but His eyes are on their way. For a little while they are exalted, and then they are gone. They are brought low and gathered up like all the others. They are cut off like heads of grain. If this is not so, who can prove me false and reduce my words to nothing? Yes, the wicked are going to get what is coming to them. No doubt there's some truth in what his friends have been saying. God will judge the wicked who exploit others. But what Job cannot yet answer which has haunted him from the very beginning, is none of that applies to his case. Why is he suffering? That's the question for Job. Now in Job 25, we have the very short and final speech from Bildad, along with Job's very terse response. Now after three increasingly heated exchanges, Job and his friends have clearly run out of steam. But like trains passing on parallel tracks, Job and Eliphaz have been speaking right past each other. And the same holds true for the speeches of Bildad and Zophar. The wisdom of Job's friends can take them only so far, no farther than their observations and their misguided view that the, miserable, that the wicked live miserable lives necessarily and that the wicked necessarily die young. Job has heard their case. And he's repeatedly pointed out the flaws in that argument, although he himself is still struggling to come to terms with the mysteries of God's providence. Now, this time, Bildad has very little to say except parroting Eliphaz. Now, most notably, Bildad completely avoids Job's challenge in verse 24 of the previous uh, exchange when Job says, "'Who can prove me false?' Bildad doesn't even try, and Zophar, you notice, doesn't even speak. He's just given up altogether, something that Job notes in Job 29, verse 22. After I'd spoken, they spoke no more. My words fell gently on their ears. And so this heated argument abruptly grinds to a halt with these very lame words from Bildad in Job 25. Then Bildad the Shuite replied, Dominion and awe belong to God. He establishes order in the heights of heaven. Can his forces be numbered? Upon whom does his light not rise? How then can a man be righteous before God, or how can one born of a woman be pure? If even the moon is not bright and the stars are not pure in his eyes, how much less man who is but a maggot, a son of man, who is only a worm? Mind you, Job is sitting here afflicted with the skin disease, in which he's infected with maggots in his skin. Now, in contrast to the glories of the heavens, Job, you're just a man being eaten alive and consumed by worms. For Bildad, Job's situation is plain. God is holy. God must punish sin. And since Job is obviously being punished for his sins, 
Job is not a righteous and upright man. It's a very simple syllogism. But simply repeating the same thing over and over and over is going to have no impact whatsoever on Job, who knows that's not his situation and who's heard all of this before. Now, in Job 26 to 27, we have the first part of a very long discourse in which Job defends his righteousness. Now, Job's response to Bildad is a response to this final speech, and it also constitutes Job's response to all of the prior speeches of his friends. In fact, Job's response will take us all the way to the end of Job 31 before a new character, Elihu, begins to speak in Job 32. And so this morning we'll tackle just the first part of that discourse, chapters 26 and chapter 27. But notice in these two chapters, a strange reversal begins to take place. Aware that his friends cannot deal with the mysteries of God's providence and the suffering of the righteous, after sarcastically responding to Bildad in Job 26, in chapter 27, Job begins to assume the role of the teacher, not only proclaiming his own righteousness, but contrasting his own personal experience of suffering with the suffering of the wicked, of the unrighteous. Now, Job is beginning to see that ultimately the explanation for his suffering is connected to the mysterious wisdom of God. Bildad and his friends have already made that point. And after berating Bildad, Job now points out that God's wisdom so far surpasses our comprehension that we only expose our folly and our foolishness by limiting God's ways to this faulty and wooden application of this principle of divine retribution as his friends have done. And so in the first four verses of Job 26, Job responds to Bildad with utter and total disdain. Then Job replied, How have you helped the powerless? How you, have, how you save the arm that is feeble? What advice have you offered to the one without wisdom? And what great insight you have displayed? Who has helped you utter these words? And whose spirit spoke from your mouth? Now it's clear that Bildad's wisdom is not so wise after all. And Job senses but doesn't yet know what the reader already knows that the final speeches from Eliphaz and Bildad actually sound more like the words of Satan than the words of God. Now, as Job begins to consider the mysterious ways of God, he considers that awesome truth that God's dominion is without end and God has no limits. And so in verses 5 through 14, Job describes almost in a doxology the glories and powers of the sovereign God. The dead are in deep anguish, those beneath the waters and all that live in them. Death is naked before God, destruction lies uncovered. He spreads out the northern skies over empty space. He suspends the earth over nothing. He wraps up the waters in his clouds, yet the clouds do not burst under their weight. He covers the face of the full moon, spreading his clouds over it. He marks out the horizon on the face of his waters for a boundary between light and darkness. The pillars of the heavens quake, aghast at his rebuke. By his power he turned up the sea. By his wisdom he cut Rahab, which is the name of the sea serpent. He cut Rahab to pieces. By his breath the skies become fair. His hand pierced the gliding serpent. And these are but the outer fringes of his works. How faint the whisper we hear of him. 
Who then can understand the thunder of his power? Well, obviously, Job knows that Eliphaz and Bildad and Zophar do not understand the ways of the Lord. They can't explain the obvious, which is that the righteous suffer and the wicked do indeed prosper. Now, beginning in Job 27, Job now assumes the role of the teacher. It's a complete reversal here in the roles of the characters. And he begins by asserting one more time that he is a righteous man who has not brought down God's wrath upon him through some secret sin. Listen to his defiant speech in verses 1 through 7 as he swears an oath, an oath that clearly indicates the nature of his dilemma. And Job continued his discourse. As surely as God lives, who has denied me justice, the Almighty who's made me taste bitterness of soul as long as I have life within me, the breath of God in my, in my nostrils, my lips will not speak wickedness, and my tongue will utter no deceit. I will never admit that you, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, are in the right till I die. I will not deny my integrity. I won't do what you or my wife have told me to do. I will maintain my righteousness and never let go of it. My conscience will not reproach me as long as I live. May my enemies be like the wicked, my adversaries like the unjust. Now, on the one hand, Job boldly proclaims his faith in the living God, while on the other, Job complains again about feeling like he's being treated unjustly or unfairly. Now, Job is not going to admit that he has done something despite all his wife and friends have put him through. Job knows full well that God is sovereign and that God can do with Job whatever he wishes. Job never denies that. Nor does Job accuse God of wrongdoing. What Job is saying is that his conscience is clean. He's trusted in God to save him from his sins. His piety before others is fruit of his justifying faith in the promise. His friends are wrong. But what Job does demand is an explanation from God. Job does not understand how God's mercy towards sinners can be squared with his justice. Why is the judgment of the wicked delayed? Why is it that the righteous must suffer in this life? And it's not until Job's hope for mediator and redeemer has come that we finally get our answer. What Job does not know is that God's mercy and justice will embrace in the glorious messianic age to come. And it falls to the apostle Paul who sets out the precise relationship between God's mercy and his justice in Romans 3, 21 through 26, our New Testament lesson this morning. Here's the answer for which Job is searching and is not yet found. It says Paul, But now a righteousness from God apart from law has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. The author to the Hebrews speaks of Job as a prophet. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that came in Christ Jesus. God presented Him, Jesus, as a sacrifice of atonement, a propitiation through faith in His blood. He did this to demonstrate His justice. Because in his forbearance, he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. There's Job's answer 
The fact that the ground has not opened up and swallowed the wicked shows that God is being patient, that it's not yet time. It's coming, but it's not yet time. He did it to demonstrate his justice at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. The question is, why doesn't the ground open up and swallow the righteous? Because the cross satisfies God's wrath and anger toward sinners. And it will take the sinless and perfect obedient Savior who bears God's wrath in his own body to resolve what Job sees as an unresolvable dilemma. How can God be both just and merciful? Now, having declared his innocence and silenced his friends, and with his own hope and faith beginning to grow, Job, who is now a graduate of the school of suffering, is able to clearly contrast his suffering with the suffering of the wicked. And so beginning in verse 8 of Job 27, Job states, For what hope has the godless when he's cut off, and when God takes away his life? Does God listen to his cry when distress comes upon him? The answer to that is, does God hear the cries of the wicked? The answer is no, without a mediator. The obvious implication is that Job, that God has been listening to Job, unlike the wicked. And Job goes on, will God, will he, the wicked, find delight in the Almighty? Will he call upon God at all times? The answer is no. And yet, Job has been calling on God all along. That's the answer. Job calls on God. He doesn't curse God. That's what his friend should be looking for, not whether Job is being punished or not. And so taking the role of the teacher, Job now tells his friends in verse 11, I will teach you about the power of God. The ways of the Almighty I will not conceal. You've seen all of this yourselves. Why then this meaningless talk? Here is the fate God allots to the wicked, the heritage of a ruthless man receives from the Almighty. However many his children, their fate is the sword. His offspring will never have enough to eat. The plague will bury those who survive him, and their widows will weep for them. Though he heaps up silver like dust and clothes like piles of clay, what he lays up the righteous will wear, and the innocent will divide his silver. The house he builds is like a moss cocoon, like a hut made by a watchman. He lies down wealthy, but will do so no more. And when he opens his eyes, all is gone. Terrors overtake him like a flood. A tempest snatches away, snatches him away in the night. The east wind carries him off and he's gone. It sweeps him out of his place. It hurls itself against him without mercy. He flees headlong from its path. It claps its hands in derision and hisses him out of its place. Yes, Job has learned something from the arguments of his friend. God punishes the wicked and sometimes he does so in this life. But what his friends cannot understand and what Job now sees is that the wicked may prosper for a season. And as Job, the veteran sufferer, can tell us, there is no necessary and observable connection between someone current suffering and whether or not they're wicked or they are righteous. There is no connection. Your arguments are false. And nothing has hurt Job as deeply as these three armchair theologians trying to correct him based upon a faulty misunderstanding, a faulty application of God's justice when they should have come and merely showed their friends some compassion. 
And yet, what Job still doesn't know as he struggles for an answer to the mysterious purposes of God is that Job is going to get one from God himself. And Job, now complaining, now thinking out loud, now arguing, is going to be silenced when God speaks to him from out of the whirlwind. The application this morning is one sentence. Be careful what you ask for, because God just might give you an answer, and it may not be the answer you want to hear. And we'll resume next time as we pick up Job's dialogue. Amen.